The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Mark chapter 10. Uh, we're doing a four-week series that'll take us through Easter. We're entitled The Final Act, Scenes from Mark's Gospel. So we're looking at the Passion Week of Christ and that which led up to it. And uh, we'll be doing that next week. And then Easter, we'll celebrate the resurrection of our Savior at the end of Mark's Gospel. So if you want to do a little reading, you can read uh, Mark's Gospel, the last uh, chapter 10 and following. That's where we'll be this week and next week. So uh, that's where we are. Mark chapter 10, we'll begin this morning in verse 46. But before I do that, let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word. Thank you for uh, our Savior who came and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. As we look at the unexpected things that happened during this last week of our Savior's life, Father, would you prepare us for the unexpected? And would you prepare us to respond to our King in whose name we pray? Amen. The unexpected. Uh, it happened to us this morning right here, obviously, and uh, it happens in life continuously. We have unexpected twists and turns that come into our lives and, and that we deal with. Maybe it's the cost of something. Maybe it's a coworker confessing a sin. Maybe it's a diagnosis that's gone wrong. Uh, maybe it's a spouse that says, I don't love you anymore, never did. I'm out of here. Maybe it's a kid's report card taking a dive and you find out there's a problem. Unexpected twists and turns in life. Uh, somebody sent me a video this week, and I thought, man, this was unexpected. Watch this video, especially watch the auctioneer's face at the end of this video. Uh, it's a bidding for a vase from the uh, Ming, uh, the Ch- Chinese Empire, the Ming uh, Dynasty period. Watch what takes place. Watch the auctioneer's face at the end of this. Seuraava kohde on Min dynastian aikainen vaasi. Lähtöhinta 500 000. Olkaa hyvä, tehkää tarjouksia. 600 000 siellä herra. 700 000 puhelimessa. 800 000 rouva. 900 000 puhelimessa. Miljoona siellä herra. Tuleeko muita tarjouksia? Ei tule. Miljoona ensimmäinen. Miljoona toinen. Miljoona kolmas. Uh, that was totally unexpected, wouldn't you say? I mean, obviously, it's a spoof. Uh, if, if we were to, I cut the end of the commercial out. It's for an aspirin company. Say, so if you have a real headache and life gives you the unexpected things, uh, take their aspirin, whatever it is. So, unexpected twist and turn. So, I, I saw that video. I got interested in vases. So, you're going to think I've got a warp mind, which I do. You know that. And so, we might as well do that. So, I started reading a little bit about vases this week, and I met some unexpected things. I had no idea the price of vases from antiquity. Uh, I don't know if you guys have looked at that or if you had any reason to. I never did until this week. So these are actual vases. These are some of the high, the first three are the highest prices vases auctioned off in our history. This is what they brought. So the one on the left came out of the Ming Empire, the Chinese uh, Empire, uh, the Ming period. And uh, it was the most, supposedly it's a, a unflawed, perfectly powdered vase, and it brought $22 million at Southby's auction. Next one, $18 million. Uh, the next one, $10 million. The one that really got my attention was the story behind these on the right. These are two vases that were made uh, actually by 
uh, Wed uh, Wedgwood, I think it is, or I forget, uh, Wedgwood, uh, the great china maker. But interesting enough, these came out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, there was a family where the uh, patriarchs passed away, and the uh, two sons and daughters were re ready to have an estate sale. And uh, they were a wealthy family, but they were getting ready to actually sell these in an estate sale for a few hundred dollars. And someone recognized them as possibly being more valuable than that. They brought in uh, an antique and antiquities person. And long story short, what they were going to sell for a few hundred dollars ended up going in an auction uh, for $2.7 million, uh, not in Oklahoma City, but New York City when they brought them there. Unexpected. They had an unexpected windfall. When we come to the life of Christ in the last week, unexpected things happen. I mean, what, what you're going to see in the life of Christ, the last week of his life, that it's going to move from celebration to crucifixion. And in between that, we're going to go celebration. And as they're celebrating Christ entering Jerusalem, then we're going to see the cleansing of the temple. And from the cleansing of the temple, we're going to see that the crowds turn their backs on Christ and they end up crucifying him. So what is it that moves a crowd, that moves hundreds and thousands of people from celebration to confrontation culminating in crucifixion? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We look at those steps together in Mark's gospel. Well, this is Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, and it really begins with him meeting a man with no eyesight but great insight. He meets a man with no eyesight but great insight. The story begins in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. It's the last miracle recording in Mark's gospel. It's the only miracle recorded in the synoptic gospel. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic, sin means same. Optic, you see. So you see that they're the same. And so it's the only miracle in the synoptic gospels where the person who is healed is named. The only one. So it's the last miracle in Mark's gospel. The only one where uh, a person is named in John's gospel, which is not synoptic. There is a name given. There are names given. And it's also the story of one who's poor and powerless, but one who's filled with faith. It's a guy with no eyesight, but great insight. His name is Bartimaeus. That's revealed to us. If you look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we don't know much about Bartimaeus. We know his name. We know who his dad is. We know his name is Bartimaeus. We know his dad is Tamias. We also know he is a blind beggar. It's about all we know about this man. He's a blind beggar. Now, I want you to think for a second what it had to be to live life as a blind beggar in the first century. What would it be like? He has very few possessions, if any at all, maybe just the coat on his back, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, probably the dirt is his bedroll and a rock is his pillow. I mean, he lives a life of hand-to-hand -hand existence. He, he perhaps begs with a cup or something else, and he's fortunate on a, on a good day if he receives a few coins in it so he can buy bread at the end of the day. On the side of the road, he lives with other people. They're the discarded people of our world. They're the broken, they're, they're, they're the discarded, they're the diseased. And so he lives on the roadside and he takes whatever comes his way. Sometimes it's a coin in the cup. Sometimes it's a slap in the face. Oftentimes it's a curse because he's obviously blind because of his sin. There are those who would give him theological treatises as why God has turned his back on them, and there are others that would look at him perhaps with compassion and pity. On this particular day, he hears a name. He hears a name that's recognizable among all those who are discards because they recognize this is a name of a man who has done miracles in the past. And he hears the name Jesus of Nazareth. And when he hears that name, hope springs up in his heart for the first time. 
When he hears that name, he, he recognizes that there are those that say he is the coming king. There are those that say he is the one who t- sit on David's throne. There are those that say he is the one who Isaiah prophesied about. In Isaiah's prophecy, it says this, he, he shall be a light to the Gentiles. He shall open the eyes of the blind and release them from the dungeon, those who sit in, and release those who sit in the dungeon of darkness. That's Bartimaeus. His eyes are blind. He sits in a dungeon of darkness. And he hears that Jesus is coming through Jericho, and that's where he is. If you look at verse 46, they came to Jericho. He was going out with the disciples. There's a great multitude. Bartimaeus is sitting by the side of the road. And so Bartimaeus, when he heard who it was, he begins to cry out. And if you look at verse 47, you see specifically what he did. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And so when Bartimaeus cries out, he's crying out for the Savior, or he states a specific uh, appellation or, or, or application of who he thinks the Savior is. He calls him the son of David, and he begs for mercy. The son of David would be a confession. To be David's son meant you're the one who's the rightful heir to the throne. To be David's son, you're recognizing that he is the one who will, can do all things and will one day reign in power. And so it's Bartimaeus' confession of faith, if you will, as to who he saw Jesus as. Bartimaeus sat in a dungeon every day. It was a dungeon of darkness. He sits on the curbside alone with his thoughts. He's like a rock in a stream of humanity that passes by him. But on this day, on this day, he hears Jesus is coming. And so he does what you would expect him to do. He screams out. This is not a timid, hey, Jesus, if you're there, can you hear me? This is a scream, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the scriptures say he cried that out over and over. But the crowds, if you look at the text, they sternly warn him. It's like a child that's screaming out when he shouldn't be screaming out. He goes, shh, who are you to call out? What gives you the right to do that? How can you call on him? Don't you know better than that? You're just a blind beggar. Look at verse 48. And they were sternly telling him to keep quiet, but he cried out all the more. He's a desperate man doing a desperate thing. He's a desperate man doing a desperate thing. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. Obviously, Jesus can hear him. And and so he says he must be at a distance. He says, call him here. And they said to the blind man, they don't even know his name, take courage and arise. He's calling for you. If you look at verse 50, he cast aside his cloak, jumped up and came to Jesus. Don't miss the obvious here. First thing is one of the only things Bartimaeus probably owned was his jacket, his coat. It, It was a coat that would keep you warm in the winter and protect you from the elements like on a day like today. It's probably the only thing that Bartimaeus owned. Maybe he owned a bedroll, maybe he didn't. He's a blind beggar, the scriptures say. So he is a man with hardly anything, but he knows with hardly anything, he wants to go to the one who has everything. And then it says he came to Jesus. Well, he jumped up and came to, this is a blind man. He jumps up and comes to Jesus. Now, how does a blind man get around? This is before CNI dogs. This is before training and all this stuff. The only way you can get around is somebody helps you. I mean, there's no, but believe me, I understand this. Uh, about three weeks ago, I think it was, I came home and I told Bev, I about wiped out a lady in HEB today. She was on my right. It was an older lady. She had a basket over there. I, it was a fruit section. And I turned around to put something in my basket. And then when I get ready to take off, I went over here and I'm a pretty big dude. And all of a sudden I meet iron and I meet a little lady. Unfortunately, I grabbed her before she hit the deck and saved her life. <laughs> That's a little dramatic, but, uh, Kept her from falling over and getting in a lawsuit with H-E-B. How's that? 
I mean, how does a guy jump up, a blind man? How does a blind man jump up and find Jesus in a crowd? I mean, nothing was going to stop this desperado from finding the one who could bring what he needed. Nothing could stop him. Hey, some of you are in desperate times right now. The family situation, a work situation, personal situation. Maybe it's a disease, maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's discouragement. Don't let anything stop you from coming to Jesus. You cast aside whatever you have and you run to the Savior. You throw it off and you run to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you bump into people. Do you think he bumped into a couple of people running to Jesus? I mean, he, he, he bumped into stuff all the time. I know what that's like. And so what we find is he runs there and then the, the, the Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? This is not some department store Santa Claus. This is not the Easter Bunny. This is not the Tooth Fairy. This is the creator of the universe who's given light to the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is the one who spoke and everything came into existence. And he asked his blind man a question, what can I do for you? Speaking of darkness, uh, this may or may not come back on. Last hour it worked where this went off and this came on. We'll see if it happens that way this time. So I'm going to leave it on. It may come back. Oh, there we go. We got it. I don't need to scream. It is on, right? Yes, Not only am I blind, I'm deaf. I wear hearing aids too. <laughs> I'm one step away from the grave. So <laughs> blind, deaf, one-eyed, cancer-ridden, but I can pinch. No, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so don't ever repeat that again. Um, so where am I? I'm hearing 600 voices. Uh, let me look at my notes. How's that? Let me go my notes. I haven't been using these notes. Let me see where I am. I'm on like page eight of my notes. I'm on page one up here. Here we go. So here's Bartimaeus, blind man. He's not standing for department store Santa Claus. I said that, right? A tooth fairy, the Easter bunny. Okay. He's standing for the king of kings and lord of lords. And he says, what do you want? If you back up in that same chapter, the disciples come to Jesus. Actually, James and John come to Jesus. And they say, Lord, would you do whatever we ask you to do? And you know what Jesus asked him? The same question he asked Bartimaeus. Same exact words. If you back up to verse 36, he said to them, to, to, to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And you jump ahead to, to verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Well, when James and John were asked that question by Jesus, they had power, prestige, and position in their minds. So they said, hey, make a secretary of state and prime minister in your new kingdom. That's what we want. We want a position of rulership, of authority. We want to be somebody. We want to be Gonzaga in North Carolina. That's who we want to be. And Bartimaeus has a blank check from Jesus. Before we look at what he asked for and you know what it is, let me ask you this question. Jesus says, here's a blank check. I've signed it. What do you want? Caribbean cruise? Bigger house? Newer tractor? Faster computer? Blank check. What do you want? What do you want? And the amazing thing is, we end up asking for that which will bring temporal satisfaction when we could have things of great joy. Because Jesus says, you know what I'll give you? I'll give you eternal life and I'll, I'll wrap you in my robe of righteousness so you can live for me. The greatest gift he can give. 
And I'm going to tell you, my friends, over the years, I've seen so many people in desperation not turn to Christ, but turn away from the Savior. I've watched them run from Jesus instead of run to Jesus. I, I, I like what uh, one author said. He said, in times of trouble, God can seem far away, but he isn't. He's always near. He wants us to know that. He wants us to feel his embrace, to feel secure in him. But although he's always close to us, when trouble strikes, we either move closer to him or further away. I've seen people go through times of desperation. They turn to a pill, they turn to a bottle, they turn to sex, they turn to buying stuff to fill the voids in their life rather than turning to Jesus. I trust in desperate times you'll turn to our Savior, but more than that, I trust that during good times and tranquil times and blessed times and difficult times, you'll run to the Savior. I, I like what John Ortberg said. He said, desperate people run to Christ no matter who's in the way. Doesn't matter. They run to Christ. That's Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus runs to the Savior. And the Savior says, what can I do for you? And Bartimaeus does what first hour we had Alta sitting right there, right in front of where Chuck and Mary are sitting right there. I had Alta. If you guys haven't met Alta, you need to meet her. She, she's the only person I know that's blind that attends TBC. She comes at 8.15 every Sunday. And she's sitting right there. And I said, you know, if, if I'm standing before Jesus and Alta standing before Jesus, I might ask for a new eye. She might ask for new eyes. That's what Bartimaeus does. Jesus said, I'd like to regain my sight. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And Bartimaeus becomes a Christ follower. Two lessons I learned from Bartimaeus. Number one, during desperate times, turn to the one who can help you deal with that desperation. During desperate times, don't turn to other stuff. Don't turn to other people. I mean, you can come to people for comfort and for counsel, but make sure you go to Jesus first. Because he's going to be there with you. In fact, uh, this author says God has pro not promised to keep us from life storms, but to be with us through life storms. One of the greatest promises is I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Over and over, the scriptures say that. In, in, in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua's taken Moses' place three times in Joshua 1. God's promise is I'll be with you. So when you go through the storm, he says, I will be with you. When you go out to fulfill the ministry he's given you, whatever it is, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, he says, go make disciples. And lo, I am what? Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. The promise is the God of the universe will be with you every step of the way. So we minister not of our power, we minister out of our brokenness because the God of the universe comes alongside us. Amen? Amen. That's how we minister. So the first lesson from Bartimaeus is desperate people run to God who can deal with our desperation. The second thing from Bartimaeus is vision has nothing to do with the eyes, it has everything to do with the heart. Our vision is about our eyes. Our vision is about our heart. We used to sing a song oftentimes here on, on Sunday mornings, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Do you remember that song? Open the uh, eyes of my heart because I want to what? See you. God, I want to see you. We, we don't say open my eyes so I can see you. Open the eyes of my heart so I can see you. And one of the things I think it's easy for us to forget in the midst of life is that really our vision comes from our heart. It comes from our heart. I've seen blind people with great insight, and I've seen seeing people with no insight. And Bartimaeus is, it's an unexpected thing here. You don't expect a beggar by the side of the road to go running up to Jesus, but he does, everybody shushing him. And the unexpected happens. Jesus met with this, this firestorm, and all of a sudden Jesus reaches out and says, your faith has made you well. And so Bartimaeus sees with the eyes of his heart. And then I learned something from Jesus in this. Where's Jesus headed to? Jesus headed to Calvary. Jesus told disciples three times in the previous four chapters that he's gone to Jerusalem and he's going to die. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I knew I was going to die next week, I'm probably not going to be looking for somebody to help. I'm probably dealing with my own stuff. And here's Jesus headed to Calvary. And Jesus looks past his circumstances and past his own stuff. And he reaches out to a broken, helpless man. There's an author named Ken Geyer. Write his name down. G-I-R. You spell his last name. And I love the way he retells the gospel stories. He's got four little books. They're all small. They're all less than 150 pages. And all he does is retell the stories. That's all he does. They're great. And at the end of each of those stories that he retells, he has a prayer. And I get this insight from Geyer about Jesus. Because Geyer writes at the end of his Bartimaeus chapter, he says, uh, here's a lesson I learned from the Savior, not to be absorbed with myself or my circumstances. He could have been that way as he marched to the cross in his own death. But he reached out to one who was broken, one who was the least, and one who was lost. He reached out to Bartimaeus. So let me, let me do this. Get your pens ready or get your device ready. Who in your world is broken right now? Who in your world is hurting right now? Who in your world is struggling right now? You got a friend whose marriage is falling apart? You got somebody you know who is far from God right now? You got somebody you know their heart is just hard right now? I want you to write their name down. Sit next to you, don't write their name down. Otherwise, write their name down. Type it in. Because we want to be like Jesus this week. And here's what Guy writes. God, help me to see like Jesus saw and help me to do what Jesus did. To visit faithfully someone who's hurting to know that somebody cares. To bring a meal so they can be nourished. To speak a kind word so they might be encouraged. And to give them a gentle touch that they might be comforted. And to lend them a listening ear so their story might be heard. Help me whenever, wherever, however I can to be light to someone who sits in the darkness. And I added this, God, would you help me? This is my writing. I cannot bring sight to blind eyes. I can't do that. If I did, I'd do this and boom, I'd be gone. I'd be well. I can't bring sight to blind eyes. But I can give hope to hopeless hearts through the gospel. My friends, you can give hope to the hurting through the gospel. And maybe you're receiving that right now. But the reality is we're surrounded by a lot of people. You know, having uh, mom passing away just a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago now, uh, I recognize, I mean, I, I do this all the time. It's what we do. We minister to folks who go through times like this, but to be on the receiving end is quite humbling. But you're also very grateful. Grateful for the hugs, grateful for the encouragement, grateful for the words, and, and grateful for the sensitivity of the body of Christ. And, and it makes a difference. It's, it's being loved on and cared for. And I'd rather be carrying the litter than being on the litter, but it seems like God has put me on the litter for quite a while now. And I praise God for those that reach out sensitively, loving, and carefully. So the next episode is a people with great desire and uh, little dedication. They've got great desire and little dedication. Got, Jesus heads into Jerusalem. Now he leaves Jericho, he's headed to Jerusalem. This is not an easy journey. This is what it looks like. To go from Jerusalem to, Jer to Jericho to Jerusalem, you have to go through the wilderness. I don't know when you think wilderness, I think trees and forests being the wilderness. This is the wilderness in Israel. Not that over there, but this over here. Okay? This is what it looks like. This is the wilderness. It's desolate. It's rocky. Uh, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's barren. 
It looks like West Texas. And so when you see this, this is what Jesus had to traverse. It's about 30 miles from Jericho to Bethany where he's going to go. And when you hear Bethany, you thank Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's where they lived. That's where Jesus stayed, one of the only homes he stayed in. So if you look at verse 11, he, he goes to Jerusalem, then he goes back to Bethany. That's where he's going to stay. And uh, he departs, and as he departs, he's hungry. So he sees a fig tree in the distance. When you see a fig tree with leaves coming out in the spring, uh, they have not yet mature figs. They're called, in Hebrew, pagim, P-A-G-G-I-M. We talked about this Thursday morning Bible study. I told the guys on Thursday morning they could have a pass today. In 35 and a half years of preaching, it's the first time Thursday morning Bible studies overlap with Sunday morning message. It's the same, same text, actually, so it uh, looks like some of them took me up on that. Um, here, here's, here's, this is what we see. We see that I, I was gone to, I don't know where I am. There I am. And if we do this, I think eventually it'll pop up. Jesus enters the city. And when he enters the city, it's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Passover week is there. And the city of Jerusalem, Josephus says, would swell to over a million people at that time. And so there would be huge crowds there. And the crowds are doing two things. They're laying down garments and they're laying down palm branches. You lay down a garment, what you're doing, you're taking your garment out, you're laying it down and said, you can walk over me. That's the concept. That's the symbolism. You can walk over me. We're laying ourselves before you. Now, the palm branch is interesting. If you go to Israel, you're surrounded by palm trees all the time. And when you see those palm trees, they're the symbol of two things in Israel. They're the symbol of joy and the symbol of And so you see these palm branches, you see palm trees everywhere. And so when Jesus came in, this is called the triumphal entry, and it's Palm Sunday. That's actually next Sunday on our calendar. Uh, But as we're going through Mark's gospel, I chose to look at it today. So they came there, they're throwing garments down, they're throwing palm branches. They're saying, with the garments down, we're submissive to you. With the palm branches, you bring joy and salvation. In fact, the text tells us in verse 9, they were crying out, Hosanna, and that Hebrew word means save us, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And so what we see is they are recognizing him as the king. The palm branch is quite interesting. I mean, this is, uh, keep looking over there. Uh, This is what Israel looks like, palm branches everywhere. And uh, it's quite interesting, the symbol of joy and salvation. So the end of time is coming. The king is returning. Guess what happens? We surround his throne in worship. Look at what it says. After these things, I look and beheld a great multitude. No one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue, standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robe, waving palm branches, symbolizing salvation and joy, salvation and joy. So next Sunday, when palm branches are passed out in a lot of churches, and we'll have a kid's choir up here and all, with those palm branches saying salvation and joy comes through for all of eternity, we'll be worshiping the lamb, saying salvation and joy comes from you glory, hallelujah. We worship the Lamb of God. Well, the people were celebrating all this. They wanted to be their king. They wanted peace with Rome, but he came to bring them peace with God. He came not as a military ruler, not as a political leader, but he came as one who is a savior for our sins. And that's when the turn came. That's when the celebration culminates in crucifixion. Because when they recognized that Jesus was coming, when he was there, and he came not to offer himself as a political and military Messiah, they could choose between a guy named Barabbas, and they scream, crucify Jesus. 
And so the celebration became a crucifixion because they didn't get the king that they wanted. Now, I'm glad today people don't turn their backs on Jesus because they don't get what they want from him. You ever go through life and say, hey, God, I wanted my daughter to be different. I wanted my son to be different. I wanted my marriage to be different. I wanted my job to be different. I wanted the outcome to be different. And we shake our face in the fist of God and say, we didn't get what we want. And we throw tantrums like three-year-olds. Like three-year-olds. In the face of God. And here's the reality. God is always in control. It's never us. Control is an illusion. Control is what we think we have. And control is what we have nothing of. We got to witness, uh, we were gone last weekend, as you know, and Tim did a magnificent job. I listened to him online and uh, did a great job. And uh, I, I saw the illusion of control last weekend. Uh, our grandson, our oldest grandson in Houston, age five, had his first t-ball game. It was the illusion of control. So he goes out in the field, and uh, his other grandparents are baseball families. I come from a baseball family, and so uh, the other grandparents, their uh, daughter, our daughter-in-law's sister, played college baseball for A&M Corpus Christi. Her husband is the marketing director for the minor league team in Nashville, so this is a baseball team. So it's our, our, our kids are away. Our son and daughter-in-law are away on vacation. We're the grandparents. We're there to cheer them on. First game ever, taking videos, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so, I mean, we're baseball families, and so Case goes on the field to play second base. We look out there, you know, we're all excited, tears in your eyes, your grandkids out there, first pitch. Uh, before the first pitch, we recognize he's got his glove on his wrong hand. <laughs> my son's the assistant coach. My, you know, sister and my daughter-in-law's sister played college baseball, softball. My dad played army baseball. I played through, you know, we were a baseball family. My grandson's out there with a the glove on the wrong hand. <laughs> The first ball is hit. It comes in his direction. You've seen t-ball games. You know what happens. There's no control. So the ball is hit. It goes right past the pitcher's man. He's playing second base. He runs up for the ball. The first baseman runs up for the ball. The shortstop runs up for the ball. The pitcher runs up for a ball. They have a wrestling match, and the ball is lying out there, and nobody's touching it. And, you know, to me, everything in life is an illustration. I mean, it just is. And I'm thinking, that's us. That's us. We think we're in control, so we wrestle with the circumstances of life, and it's an illusion. The other kid's circling the bases about 16 times while they're wrestling for the ball. And we wrestle with all these circumstances when we can turn to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're weighted down and we're buried. And so what happens is they didn't get what they wanted, so they hollow crucify him. And we don't get what we want, and we turn our back. Well, the final scenario, so what they have, they've got great desire but little dedication because they turn their backs on Christ and how to crucify him. And the, the final scene that we see is uh, religion filled with activity but with very little fruit. Two things take place. Christ is on his way. It's the next day. If you look at the text, he's headed back from Bethany to Jerusalem. This takes place in chapter 11, and now we're in verse 12. He's hungry. He saw a tree with leaf, so it's what I started to say a minute ago. So it's a fig tree. The leaves are out, so it means you should have uh, fruit on it. It's going to be green fruit. 
but you can take and eat it. Jesus is hungry. He goes up there, he sees the leaves, but there's no pagim. Pagim would be the green unripe fruit. There's a different Greek word for, or Hebrew word both, for ripened figs. It's a totally different word in Greek and Hebrew. So Jesus expected to find this when he didn't find anything on it. He saw the leafy activity coming, but no fruit on it. So it gave the illusion of bearing fruit, but it didn't bear fruit. And so Jesus curses the tree. He walks into the temple. He sees the illusion of spirituality. He sees a lot of activity, but no fruit taking place. And so he cleanses the temple. He cleanses the temple of the money changes and everything that's happening in there. And the scriptures tell us in verse 17 that Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It's a house of prayer for all nations, not some nations, but every nation in the nation of Israel had begun in the court of the Gentiles to set up shop. Gentiles weren't welcome, basically. And Jesus says, this is for all people, not some people. And he turns over the money changes a second time. The next day they come back and they see the fig tree, it's cursed. And the cursing of the fig tree sandwiched in between the cleansing of the temple teaches the same thing. A lot of activity, but not much fruit. And may I suggest to you that's true of the church today as well as many of us individually. A lot of activity, a lot of activity. But, you know, most churches, we're, we're an anomaly. There are other churches in our community that are anomalies. Most churches in America today, you don't have to bring a Bible. Nobody's going to tell you to open your apps up or your, your devices up because they're not going to look at the Scriptures. So they're going to offer all kinds of things to attract people, but they're going to teach the Word of God. So you can go to a Zumba class, you can play bingo or whatever else. So there's a lot of activity, but there's not much spirituality. And I pray that we will close the doors of Temple Bible Church the day that we close the Word of God and don't use it. Because it's the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so he goes in the temple and he cleanses it. He looks at the tree and says it should bear fruit, but it doesn't, so he kills it. And I'm afraid God will look down one day and say, I'm done. I'm done. There's all this activity, but no spirituality. And it's easy for us to be active and not spiritual when we don't spend time in the presence of God. I asked the worship team to do that second song. It's a brand new song we did, A Beautiful Name, because it talks about the power and the name of Jesus and worshiping him. He has no equal. He has no rival. So we bow before him. So what happens on these unexpected turns? Hey, you're confronted with an unexpected blind man. You see an unexpected fig tree with no fruit. You walk into the temple and instead of everything that should be going on, it's a place of commerce. And what's happened is, instead of accepting, they've rejected the king. The celebration that began the day of the triumphal entry turned into confrontation in the temple, which culminated the crucifixion at Calvary. And so we asked the question this morning, have you rejected or accepted him? as the ruler of your life. Heaven, Easter season, Christ comes and offers himself the triumphal entry. That's what we're celebrating today. In a matter of just a few days, those who said, you are a king, said crucify him. What happened? They didn't get what they wanted. And so what looked like fruit bearing was not. And it's easy for us to fall in that same category. Because activity void of a transformed heart is only good works. 
but a transformed heart does the good works that he's called us to do. Triumphal entry, crucifixion. Think about that interplay as you watch this video. Lord Jesus, would you be the ruler of our lives? Would you be the one who we relinquish control to? We recognize you as the one that salvation is found in. How you give sight to the blind. Not just those who are physically blind, but especially to those of us that are spiritually blind. In the midst of that, we confess that too often we cling to the things of here. We see you who barred a boat to preach in. We see you who barred a lunch to feed people with. We see you who barred a donkey to ride on and you who barred a grave to be buried in. We confess we cling to things here instead of clinging to you. And so we confess that before you and proclaim you as Lord in your name. Amen.